Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything that's happening in Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, where you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at the Victorian election results and how this will affect the Liberal Party in the future, men behaving badly in politics, why can't they just keep their hands to themselves? And how long will this federal parliament last? It's a question that needs to be asked and we'll do our best to answer it. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, prominent Sydney racing identity. 2018 has been the year of mayhem in Australian politics and it's been a continuation of a theme over the past few weeks. The recent Victorian election saw a return of the Andrews Labor government where they picked up an extra 11 seats and a 6% swing towards them. And the final result in two-party preferred voting was 57% to 43%. But was it a case of Labor performing very well or the Liberal Party performing very poorly, David? They're a competent government. They've had a few scandals. They've had a few uh, mishaps. They badly mismanaged the firefighters thing that went the wrong way. They... That was something that an inexperienced Premier walked right into. Having said that, Daniel Andrews looks like he can do the job, and the job gets done. Most of what gets done gets done well, and he, he put in some very positive policies. The Victorian opposition was awful, probably best personified by the disgraceful breaking of parliamentary convention by lying to them and saying that they needed pairs and on Good Friday, nonetheless, and the two members coming back in. The lobster with a mobster, a Matthew Guy dining with the mafia, and just an air of corruption, an air of sleaze, an air of not really having many plans, I think all went into it at that level. I think it's both. I don't think the Andrews government has quite found its groove yet, but I don't think it's a, a bad government whatsoever. Well, I, I agree. It hasn't been a great government. It hasn't been a poor government either. But it's been a competent government and it's articulated quite clearly what it was planning to implement and it then proceeded to do it. And I think that there's quite a strong message in that for governments all around, not just around Australia, but all around the world. Promise to do things and then you proceed to do it. I think the other factor was that the Labor Party did run a, an entirely positive campaign or a largely positive campaign, and that compares quite dramatically with the negative campaigning by the Liberal Party. And I think that's the thing that the electorate rejected. They wanted to close down public housing, safe injecting rooms. They wanted to remove the safe schools campaign. They, they seem to be worried about all these gender issues that the electorate was not worried about at all. They're worried about gay and transgender students. They were race-baiting African communities, ramping up law and order. Entirely negative, and it was soundly rejected by the electorate. There was a classic interview with Christopher Pine in which the journalist said, are you scared to go to Melbourne after Peter Dutton, of all people, said that Melbourne was a war zone, more or less. And Christopher Pine said, why should I be scared to go to Melbourne? Then he remembered, oh, yeah, the African gangs. Complete debacle. And that's been a theme that started off on January the 1st this year, where Malcolm Turnbull fronted up at Bondi Beach, of all places, to complain about African gangs in Victoria. So obviously this had been prepared for a long, long time. Now, we can argue that state and federal campaigns are different, and, and they are, obviously. In the Victorian election, there were many state issues that were called into play. 
But a lot of people were saying, well, the Canberra factors involved here as well. Was the removal of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in August, was that a big factor in this result? The problems plaguing the federal party are plaguing the state parties as well. Certainly, we've had a period of time where you've had a, a Labor government in power at federal level and then state Liberal parties in uh, power at the state level and, and vice versa. And I, I really don't like saying this because it makes – there's a few reasons why. It makes me look like I'm biased against the Liberal Party. I'm not generally. Also, if I'm right, it means that politics in Australia is in a very parlous way. When we have a party that's so broken and so unfit at every level, we, we, we do have a problem, I think. This is how people like Trump get in. This is how people like Macron in France get in. They ride this discontent. Brexit in England is in, in Britain is the other. This wave of discontent gets ridden and suddenly things have spun right out of control and, and nobody really knows what's going on. The Liberal Party needs this restructure we've been talking about in the last few podcasts. I think it's now a necessity. For democracy to function very well, you need all sides of politics to contribute. So whether that's left, right, centre... There's been great debate about the, the centre being vacated within the Australian electorate, that they're moving to the left and to the right, but there's no centre centre ground anymore. I'm not sure how true that is, because within the Victorian election, there was a 10% swing against the Liberals in their heartland seats. So that's, that's really unheard of. There were seats that were lost in the Victorian election that have never been anywhere else apart from the Liberal Party or never been held by anyone else except for Conservative parties. The Victorian Parliament was formed in 1856, although the Labor Party wasn't formed until um, 1893. There's some seats that have gone to the Labor Party that they've never actually held. If you look at the template of the voting patterns from the Victorian election and place them over the federal seats, there's actually quite a few Liberal-held seats, such as the seat of Higgins, that come into play. These are formerly safe seats, and it, it looks like they'll swing swing to the Labor Party, and this is really unheard of. The swings that we've seen in the recent federal by-election of Wentworth, and, and again, Wentworth is, I think it was the fourth safest or the sixth safest seat for the Liberal Party in Australia. Uh, it had had a couple of prime ministers, including Malcolm Turnbull. Nearly always a senior liberal held the seat. That's how important it was. Now, it went to Karen Phelps, who was a very strong candidate. And there was some strategic campaigning by Labor, who I don't think would have quite got it. Dave Sharma would have got it on preferences if Labor had done better. But Labor saw their opportunity to have a strategic loss, which gave them a long-term vi victory. This bodes poorly for Tony Abbott, who's, I think, on an 11%. For someone like Scott Morrison, who's on 12%. Julie Bishop on 16% is in trouble in Western Australia. Yes, well, it is amazing that all of these reasonably safe seats, and it's hard to determine what a safe seat is these days, because uh, previously the, the definition of a safe seat was a margin of 5%. Now that's gone up to 10%. 10% is now seen as a safe seat and 20% is seen as an ultra-safe seat. So the definition of what a safe seat has changed quite dramatically over the past decade or so. One factor that I did notice in all of the by-elections and the 
general state election that happened this year is that the message of positivity has always trumped the message of negativity. Does the Liberal Party have any room for a positive message to sell to the electorate? This is the interesting thing. I think they're still remembering Tampa, which was a highly negative campaign. The Liberal Party over since probably 75 have run either small campaigns, you know, the small target, which Labor don't tend to do as well at. Kim Beasley famously ran the small target campaign and was wedged by John Howard. Or they run these negative campaigns. Labor is going to raise your taxes. Interest rates are always higher under Labor. Labor can't run a budget surplus. Immigration is killing the country, except for our friends who are already here who are doing a great job. They always stumble on that, which is why I think they went after a tiny group of dispossessed people in Melbourne, because if you talk about Middle Eastern or or Asian immigration, you're running into much bigger people and a much easier argument. So it's that small target again. And of course, it's rubbish. African immigration here has just been as fruitful and as as enriching as all other immigration for Australia, except, of course, 1788. The Liberal Party, all they can really do is run against tired governments, it seems. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at men behaving badly and sexual harassment in politics. The leader of the New South Wales opposition, Luke Foley, resigned from the Labor Party after allegations of sexual harassment from almost two years ago were made public. There's been a history of sexual harassment of women by men across party lines. The Labor Party, there were allegations against Joe Tripodi many years ago, allegations against Greens MLC, Jeremy Buckingham, allegations against Nationals MP Barnaby Joyce, allegations against Liberal Lord Mayor in Melbourne, Robert Doyle. Why can't these men just zip up their pants and keep their fingers to themselves? It's incredible, isn't it? It's not that hard. And people say, oh, times have changed. I don't think they have. I don't think it's ever really been acceptable, but I think there's been an empowerment from victims who are a little bit more willing to speak up. And this is a good thing. It's funny how Jeremy Buckingham's allegation, or the allegations against him, I think were a big factor in Victoria. I think the Greens did worse than they were expected to do. The Greens never do quite as well as they think, which is something to remember about the Greens. But I I do think in this case, these allegations, which are very serious allegations and, and quite disappointing from a progressive party, I guess there's always a little bit of an assumption that these sort of harassment issues come from conservative politics. In the British parliamentary system, a lot of the allegations about sexual harassment and sexual abuse of women in parliament has been on the conservative side of politics. But in Australia, it seems to be across the board. There's 
as I mentioned, there's Labor Party, Greens, Liberal Party, National Party. Of, of course, there's a combination of factors involved here. There's the power. In a lot of cases, there's alcohol involved. In uh, Luke Foley's case, it was a Christmas function combined with journalists and staffers after they were kicked out from one bar and went to another one. And I'm just thinking, like, where is the political antenna for these MPs? Like, journalists, staffers and alcohol in a bar, that's just such a bad combination. I've heard rumours about Luke Foley's practices with alcohol, and I don't know if they're true or not. In Labor Party circles, there was knowing looks between everyone when the allegations were made public, and hence that drinking was the issue. I think for a lot of men, it's that sense of entitlement. It's that sense of power that they have. It's that sense of that they can do no wrong. After Me Too, however, a lot of commentators have come out and said, oh, no man is safe. And that is right in a sense in that a much higher standard of behaviour is expected from men. Well, the informal protocol has been that the allegation is either hushed up or pushed away to the side, hoping that nothing actually comes of it. And then there's the denial process, which is what happened in Luke Foley's case. Definitely the denial. And also in, in Jeremy Buckingham's case, there was a denial that this did not happen. And that seems to be the, the protocol that they'll adopt. It didn't happen. Nothing to see here. Please go away. And usually there's a cover-up of all of these processes. And in Luke Foley's case, the rumours had been circulating for about two years. And of course, we never heard about any of those uh, rumours publicly until it was brought up under parliamentary privilege by the Liberal MP, David Elliott. There's no right side because he named the woman involved who, as I understand it, wanted it kept confidential while it was sorted out. I'm not going to name her. It's a bit like the Jeffrey Rush case in that, as far as I can tell, the actress involved did exactly the right thing. There was behaviour that made her feel uncomfortable. She approached her supervisor about it and instead of taking in the alleged perpetrator and saying, okay, what's going on? This has happened. Can you tone it down? And you'll need to apologise to her. He either storms off in a half and never gets work again, or he he realises, I've I've overstepped the line, has a look at himself, improves. Instead, it gets leaked to the newspaper by someone, clearly not her. And next thing, two careers, his and hers, are under really deep threat. Now, of course, if Jeffrey Rush is guilty, then, you know, he, he deserves the punishment that gets meted out to him. But if it is a misunderstanding, like he's implying, and I'm not jumping to the defense of the instant defense, these things have to be weighed, these things have to be measured, these things have, he should have the chance to make things right at the level that it is appropriate for him to make it right at. And this is the same with Luke Foley. He threatened to sue someone well it didn't really matter who he sued it, it seemed like he just had to sue someone and that that's what he decided to do that he was planning to sue the the abc fortunately he did back down so that's it for luke foley he'll he'll be gone at the next election he resigned as the leader of the labor parties and of course that sends out a very strong message that this behaviour will not be tolerated. So that's at the state level. At the federal level in the Senate, there's been quite a bit of commotion going on in there. Recently, the leader of the Greens, Richard Di Natale, he, he asked for stronger rules for, to police sexism in Parliament to be implemented. And while he was speaking, there were three Conservative MPs, David Linehelm, Fraser Anning and Barry O'Sullivan. They walked out. Now, these three Conservative senators, they've got form, what they 
constantly do is hurl insults at the senator, Sarah Hansen-Young. She's a Green senator, of course. But they do it strategically. They do it when the microphones are switched off. They do it under their breath so that she can hear them, but no one else can. This behaviour is totally unacceptable. Lionhelm, I have a particular dislike for. He's an odd little man as a politician. I've never met him, so he may be the nicest guy we've ever met. But as a politician, in a parliament filled with inappropriate members, Lionhelm is probably the most inappropriate. He breaks the fundamental rule we had as kids growing up in the country. If you can't take it, don't dish it out. Because if you stir someone up, if you call them names or what have you, you'll get it back. He dishes it out and he can't take it. He's thin-skinned, glass-jaw, not terribly bright. He tried giving it to Sarah Hansen-Young and she gave it back to him and he did not like it. Fraser Anning, another mediocrity. And this sense of entitlement that, you know, you should be allowed to treat anyone who you like. And they claim, oh, we're not sexist, we treat men the same way, without any understanding of the differing power structures. So we tend to forget that Parliament actually is a workplace. And if these behaviours were actually happening in any other workplace around Australia, most definitely within the public service and to a lesser extent within the private sector... This would not be tolerated at all. People would be fired for sexual harassment and there'd probably be a lawsuit against a business or a department that was condoning that sort of practice. So federal politics does need to clean up its act. But generally, it seems like all parties have got a problem with the treatment of women. But Liberal and the National Party seem to have more of a problem there. The former Liberal MP, Julia Banks, she's the member for Chisholm in Victoria. She resigned from the... Liberal Party last week, she said that the treatment of women in Parliament is years behind the business world. For sure. And the sad thing is, is that the Liberal Party have a decent record towards women. Um, Not a great record, don't get me wrong. They're not postmodern feminists at the cutting edge of gender equality. If you go back to Menzies, Menzies honoured the women of the, the Liberal Party. He knew who'd set up those branch meetings that he had to attend, who promoted them, who handed out the leaflets on election day. It wasn't the the idiot male who was trying to tell him about geopolitics in Southeast Asia with no understanding. It was the women who got the stuff done. Menzies, of course, appoints the first federal female minister, Damien Lyons, in 1951. Now, she's only a secretary to another minister, but it's a massive step. You have prominent women ministers like Margaret Guilfoyle, like Jocelyn Newman. Bronwyn Bishop was, for about five minutes, seen as a serious contender to the leadership of the party in the 1980s. It wasn't because she was a woman that stopped her. They've had a few female premiers in the States. Uh, So their behaviour towards women has gotten worse. They need to look at that. Well, politically, it seems like quite a foolish process that they're going through at the moment because... The electorate is made up of 50% men, 50% women. Their parliamentary numbers in the Liberal National Party, it's only around 21% at the moment, and that compares with 46% in the Labor Party. Now, 25 years ago, Labor set up a quota system for 50% of winnable seats need to go to women. Now, at the time, the Conservatives were, they mocked the Labor Party. They said, well, this is not going to work. Like, it's all about merit and all that. You know, if it's all based around merit, I fail to see how people like Fraser Anning and Barry O'Sullivan can get into Parliament. 
The coalition has always resisted the idea of having quotas to increase the number of women in their ranks, and they've given quite frivolous reasons for this. One is that this is what the Labor Party does. Labor Party is all about quotas, and the coalition is all about free enterprise and meritocracy. But it hasn't worked out that way for them. In their allocation of ministers, they do have a quota system there for the Liberal and the National Party based on how many votes they've received in the in the election. So they've got a quota system for that. Why don't they have one for women as well? When you look at the female membership, <laughs> Macalia Cash, Bronwyn Bishop, perhaps it's not such a good idea. Having said that, let's be fair, they're no worse than a lot of the males. Even if they didn't put it in and they did it quietly and had it unofficially, not as a party platform thing. One of the things they're worried about is being too close to Labor, but also being too close to collectivism. I think you can manage it. You just do it very quietly. It's more than that, though. It is about cleaning out those members who at least come across as anti-woman. Tony Abbott, the elephant in the room, minister for women of all people. There is a sense in which I could see what they were trying to do. He had a image problem with women. So, oh, we'll make him minister for women and show how empathetic and how good he is for women. And, of course, that lasted about as well as we expected and retrospectively was a massive mistake too. I think it's the end of this old-style right-wing politics. It comes out of the 50s, 60s and 70s. I think they really need to use the next period of opposition properly. They wasted their last period of opposition. Tony Abbott did no, none of the hard policy work. It's too late now. They've approved every current sitting member, but they really need to do the hard work of cleaning people out. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we ask the question that's on everyone's lips. How long will this government last? lost every by-election this year, they lost the Prime Minister, their MPs are resigning left, right and centre, they've plunged further into minority government and they're on the nose in their heartland territory. The Liberal government is in a very precarious position at the moment but doesn't have enough skill to even last until the next election which is due in May 2019. The numbers at the moment, and you need 76 to to run government and provide a speaker in the parliament. Currently, they're at 74 MPs and 69 for the Labor Party, and there's seven crossbenchers. That's a pretty big crossbench. It's almost Italian from an Australian point of view. And, of course, we can laugh about Italian politics, um, but Australia has been called the coup capital of the democratic world with five prime ministers in the last 10 years. We live in very strange times. I believe the break point is 2009 when Tony Abbott becomes leader of the opposition. And suddenly, because he doesn't play by the rules, there are no rules. He should not have won the 2013 election, but he wins in a landslide. thought he was a terrible leader of the opposition. I thought he gave no 
sense of what he wanted to do. He just wanted to do what like we were in. Lo- he said we are in lockstep with Labor on education and, and no cuts to the ABC or SBS. This was all thrown out the window within about six weeks of coming in. He made it so that if you are a pundit, you cannot predict what was going on because there was this element of chaos. So anything can happen. Anything can happen with this government at the moment. There have been calls for the election to be called right now. Timetable-wise, that really can't happen. If the government called an election right now, there'd be a campaign over Christmas. No one wants that. They'd be going to the polls in mid-January when it's still hot and everyone's on holidays. The most likely dates that are available to the government now are early March, which is a little bit unlikely, or going full term in May 2019. So there have been calls for an election right now. This is not something that the crossbench would want to have a look at. They want to go for as long as possible, especially someone like Karen Phelps. She's only been in Parliament for about three or four days. Why would she want to go to another election right now? She needs extra time to raise funds for the election campaign. A lot of the crossbenchers need that as well. So the talk about an election right now, that's not going to happen. It it makes for fun and games in Parliament, but it's either going to be March or May next year. Malcolm Turnbull, who has somehow managed to present himself as the great martyr of Australian politics, he gets some sympathy in that everybody wanted to give him the electoral hiding that they are going to give Scott Morrison. And so there's this sense of we were denied showing him what we really think. But Malcolm Turnbull gave the boneheaded strategy of going in March to clear the air for the Berejiklian government. I don't think he quite understands how unpopular the Berejiklian government is in New South Wales. They could replace Gladys with Bob Carr a most electorally successful Premier and still get a hiding. Well, the position of Prime Minister is the position of the most authority in the country, of course. Now, when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, he didn't talk about all of these things. But now that he's a feather duster, he's quite keen to interfere. He's quite keen to give advice. He's quite keen to say, yes, you go for an election now. Now, there's a little bit of a furphy going on here where Malcolm Turnbull, he previously claimed This is after he was dumped from the position of Prime Minister. He said that in 40 key marginal seats, their polling, internal polling, showed that the LNP was ahead 52 to 48. Now, if that was true, why didn't he call an election just before he was toppled? Reading polls is a science. Mark Twain's lies, damn lies and statistics also applies to polls. You can pull any poll out to put your side in a favourable light or to put your side in a bad light. Kevin Rudd was dumped on bad polls. Now, John Howard never got anywhere near the type of polling Kevin Rudd got. And of course, John Howard was electorally very successful. But Kevin Rudd didn't massage the egos of the turkeys pulling him down. Neither did Julia Gillard. She tried a bit harder. Malcolm, of course, was not popular. I think he retained a personal popularity amongst some people. He's a charismatic, charming person in the right circumstance, which most prime ministers have been. He didn't really grab the imagination of the public in a way that even a Gough Whitlam, who wasn't that electorally successful, but Gough is still spoken with in hushed tones. Well, it should be interesting to see what happens over the next few months, especially from the sidelines. How much noise will Malcolm Turnbull make from the sidelines? How much advice will he offer to Scott Morrison, which of course won't be taken up? But I did notice that Craig Kelly, he's the member for Hughes. Now he's a member of the hard right in New South Wales. He was making a lot of noise about resigning from the Liberal Party and sitting on the crossbench, which 
probably could, would have caused more trouble for them. Eventually, it was all bluff and bluster. The right faction of the New South Wales Liberal Party, they decided to make a blanket decision to formally endorse all of their sitting MPs. So there's no talk about Craig Kelly sitting on the crossbenches anymore. And, but there's just a lot of disunity and just a lot of... It's, it's almost like they've given up on government. So Craig Laundie, he's the member for Reid in the Sydney Inner West, he just seems disinterested. He spends a lot of time on Twitter talking about what the government could have done in the past, talking about Malcolm Turnbull, the future, his future. We're not even sure if he's going to be running for the seat of Reid. So there's a lot of Liberal MPs that are pretty much like that. They've lost interest. When you see the footage of Parliament Question Time, you see a lot of the Liberal National Party MPs in the background, heads down, disinterested. They're on their phones. I was watching Question Time yesterday and Christopher Pine was talking up the government's achievements. We could spend 20 minutes showing how his figures were, shall we say, massaged heavily. But I was more interested in the backbench. Instead of the vigorous nodding and the hear-hears and the that's right and the pointing and the general support a minister would get in these types of debates. And for a senior minister like Chris Pine to be almost ignored, and there were four or five of them behind him, there was no enthusiasm. I think they know that they're dead and that they're finished and that they're really praying for a miracle. 2018 has definitely been the annus horribilis for the Liberal Party. Political parties always look for some sort of circuit breaker if they're having a difficult period. So will the Christmas break be some sort of circuit breaker for the Federal Liberal National Party? I don't think it can be. They've tried the terror thing. It failed. They've tried the refugees are flooding the country. It failed. They've tried the we gave tax cuts to everybody and the jobs should flow from that. That failed. There's nothing left. I think really they're just stumbling their way to an election. December is usually the killing season as far as leadership is concerned in Australian politics. Now, the Liberal Party brought that forward a bit. They had their killing season in August. But generally, aside from that, we're, we're at the beginning of December. Not that much happens in December, although this is the final week of parliamentary sitting for the year. People are mindful of other things. They're worried about the end-of-year work schedule. They're worried about Christmas holidays. They're worried about going away. They're thinking about other things. And then January, not much happens. It's hot. Most people are away on holidays. That, in a sense, can work as a circuit breaker where MPs of all persuasions, they're away from the political system. They can spend time with families. They can ponder what will happen in the future. And that's around a four, five, six-week break where things don't happen for a long, long time. So you can come back in the new year, reset your political agenda and get things moving again. But I'm, I'm with you. I can't see how they'll be able to turn things around. But things do happen in strange ways in politics. But I was interested to see one interview with the editor of the Herald Sun in Victoria. That was on Sky After Dark. So that's JC Campbell. He's the editor of the Herald Sun. But he was saying that there's virtually no way that he could see anything being able to change for the Liberal National Party except for external events. Now, he didn't specifically say what these external events were, but I guess he's talking about some sort of calamitous event that happens either in Australia or, or overseas, possibly another 9-11 attack in New York, although that's, that's an international event. But it's almost like the LNP, politically, they've just been so such a poor 
government over the past five years. And sure, we can argue that the, the wheels of government, the machinery of government, that still turns over. Public servants still get paid. The whole government still runs. It's not like the walls of society have collapsed or anything like that. But the politics of government has been totally dysfunctional over the past five years, and, it's, and especially over the past six or seven months since they removed Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister. They were barely on with Malcolm for a whole range of reasons. I think he, he was hampered by a, a noxious right wing who kept asking him. They were saying about the DUP in, in Ireland that they refused to take yes for an answer. And I think that's the same with the, the toxic right wing of the Liberal Party. No matter what he did to appease them, it was never good enough. Scott Morrison, who really can't explain why Malcolm was dumped, but it looks like that one, Malcolm wanted to tax the miners and two, wanted to give a say back to normal branch members. This seems to be the only real reason. It's not as if Dutton who was the stalking horse or Scott Morrison were these messianic figures in the background who Keating and Hawke or like Whitlam and Corwell, who, who were the obvious people. They were neither of them were obvious people. And of course, Scott Morrison has not really shown his suitability to the role. Peter Van Onselen, who is fairly open about the fact that he, he supports the Liberal side of Parliament, has said Scott Morrison is a laughingstock. And that's the one thing you can't be as a politician. People will laugh at you and make jokes about you, and you know, and, and that's as it should be. John Howard was never a laughingstock. Julia Gillard was never a laughingstock. Kevin Rudd was never a laughingstock. Scott Morrison is, and that's fatal. And that's a big problem for him, and maybe it's just a case where politics has just become a bit too, too difficult for all involved, but... People need to fill those positions. We need to fill the position of Prime Minister. Every seat around Australia, all 151 seats at the next election, they need to be filled by someone. So, But it has become more difficult over the past decade or so, the practice of politics. That won't stop us from discussing it, of course, but it is becoming more and more difficult to manage. If the Liberal Party was really serious, it would go beyond a quota. A quota is a good thing, but I think it would go beyond that. How do you put in people like Craig Kelly, the names we go through every podcast, who just aren't suited? And Labor have this as well. There are, you know, seat warmers and duds and sometimes the local seat, everybody wants a safe seat, nobody wants a swinging seat. Sometimes the seats just don't have anyone at the time who are interested. I'm not saying that dud candidates are solely a problem of the Liberal Party. They're not. I can't see any up-and-comer who'd be prime ministerial material. I can't see any minister who has done an outstanding job and has really made the role their own in any substantial way. I was looking last night on um, lists of Australian attorneys general and Christian Porter, who's mediocre at best, George Brandis, who was appalling in the same company as... Garfield Barwick, as Moss Cass, as Alfred Deacon, as Gough Whitlam. Okay, Whitlam was when he was in the Jungfrau, but nonetheless, men of substance, men of intellectual achievement, Higgins, on and on it goes. This is this is what we've come to, and I think it's it's very sad. 
Christian Porter has done better than Brandis, and I think he actually does have a better understanding of the law than Brandis. And for a while, I thought he might have been the one competent minister, and he still might be. There's been a few scandals. Well, I guess the electorate is made up of the good, the bad and the ugly, and you get the brilliant people and the duds, and Parliament needs to reflect that. But we do expect a little bit better from our parliamentarians, whether it's competence or behaviour issues. 2018 has been quite a stunning year politically. Let's see how 2019 pans out. Two elections coming up, the New South Wales election and the federal election. It's not the baseball bats out. It's it's the drive-by shootings. It's the napalming. I think we may see the wipeout of the party, which will hopefully give it the chance. As I said, I think Tony Abbott will win Warringah because... Warringah will have 25 people run for it and they'll split the vote and he'll come through with about a 2% margin. I think Barnaby Joyce has lost New England. Anything's possible, but I, I think we'll find that News Corp in particular will be filled with what now for the ex-minister of uh, as they've lost their seat and then we won't hear from a lot of these people again. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. All the best for the season and we'll see you next month.